I'm excited to join you here today with my friend Ian Rubina uh, from the Outlaw Ocean Project. And Ian has a very interesting career and very interesting initiative with the Outlaw Ocean Project. So much has been accomplished through it. I thought, what a great way for our audience to get some exposure to it and, frankly, for it to be the last podcast of the year, which is uh, 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 finishing the year with a bang. Uh, he is also the first professional journalist that I'm interviewing on the podcast. So I was uh, joking with Ian just before that uh, said I'm more nervous than he is this time around because he, uh, he does this all the time and uh, has uh, won a Pulitzer in the process. So we'll chat a bit more about that. But Ian, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and Ian, we'll, let's start a little bit about your your history, sort of as a as an individual growing up uh, in the U.S. and and even a little bit about your family heritage. And uh, I know you had a, if I recall correctly, it was a grandfather that was a, a first judge. Uh, um, the, so just a little bit about that because I think it helps to put into a perspective of how you got here today. So tell us a bit about it, Ian. Yeah, no, I mean, um, so I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and that's where I live now. Um, and um, I was a cultural anthropologist before I was a journalist, and I worked on Cuba um, and lived a bunch of places. Um, I married my um, language teacher um, uh, from high school. Um, so there's a linguistic thread that runs in the family. My son is a polyglot and I hope to get him under your tutelage one day, Gary. Um, but he hopes to be a interpreter translator when he grows up, he's in college now. Um, like you said, my father, um, uh, I'm, you know, uh, of mixed descent. So my father is black Puerto Rican and my mother is Irish. They both were born in the U S uh, my father was a federal judge, uh, here in Washington, DC for many years and handled a bunch of thorny high profile cases before he retired about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and yeah, I began uh, working as an investigative journalist about three decades ago. Um, I left grad school and went straight to the New York Times and um, and stayed there for many years. And then about three years ago, I decided to create my own journalism shop so that I could specialize on um, this particular topic. Uh, so Ian, I've had a lot of people, especially when we announced the partnership with the, with the Outlaw Ocean Project, ask a little bit about what drives the work and what does the day-to-day -day look like. So if you were to take us through a day in your in your regular day, what does that look like? What does the day in Ian's uh, <laughs> schedule, um, when on the field especially? So. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That, that distinction is important. So when I'm on land, um, which is about two-thirds of the year, um, then I'm in this little office in my backyard and I have a staff of 12. They're all different places around the world. And we're working hard on either the next reporting trip or the current investigation and its story. When I'm in the field, typically, you know, one of the things that we do that is unique is we report all the stories at sea or in theater. So if we're looking at a story about the abuse of migrants crossing the Mediterranean, trying to get to Europe, launching from Libya, then we won't do that story unless we can actually go to Libya and also go on the water. And that's actually the last investigation we did. I was I took a team into Libya and I had another team on the water. And, and again, Alexa Translations was hugely helpful in that investigation and handling all the different languages that we were encountering 
Um, most of the reporting is at sea and, and I do all the, you know, at sea reporting. And that means going to fishing grounds, usually high seas fishing grounds, which are hundreds, if not thousands of miles from shore. And that means you're looking at, you know, 10 days, two weeks just to get to the fishing grounds. And then when you're there, um, it's a, it's a complicated process to try to get these folks to talk to you because they're very skeptical. Um, you're a journalist and, and, um, an odd presence there. And so it's a sort of stepwise process so that you can approach these boats and slowly, safely try to warm them up to the notion of at least engaging with you radio to radio, bridge to bridge. And then maybe if you get lucky, you'll get um, on board and actually be able to directly inspect the conditions and talk with the crew. Um, the, the investigation we just finished took four years. It was focused on the Chinese distant water fishing fleet. And we were the first Western journalist to ever get on Chinese distant water fishing vessels and spend some time in a bunch of places around the world. Uh, but that's why it took four years and it's super expensive and slow and sometimes dangerous. Not so much that the people will do you harm. Typically, you're not getting on a vessel unless you're invited or you're with law enforcement. And so if you're invited, the captain is not just boss, but God on these vessels. And if he says, yeah, you can come on board, then no one's going to mess with you. The danger in this setting is the conditions. You know, you're dealing with places where swells or waves are, you know, two stories tall at all times. And, you know, the, the floor is extremely slippery and sort of shifting in a fun house kind of style and their massive gear and equipment and, and um, you're working 20 hours and often the heaviest fishing happens in the middle of the night. And so it's dark and um, there's a lot that can go wrong um, at the, the ship to ship transfer for you to get onto a ship. You're looking at climbing a, a rope ladder that might be two, three stories tall as you know, because there's, there aren't bridges, you know, that go ship to ship. You have to climb up onto it. Um, so these are the things that make it truly um, dodgy. And Ian, uh, the, I have lots more questions about that, but I'll, I'll go back to uh, to a couple of things uh, really around uh, a little bit about your, your upbringing and who had, I mean, this is some exciting work, but you to become the Ian that you became uh, today, who had the biggest impact growing up uh, on you and, and on your life? Um, that's a good question. I've never gotten that question. So I don't have an answer sitting on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I think, um, it's hard to cite one person. If I, I think that my wife, you know, she was my high school Spanish teacher. Um, I pursued her for a bunch of years and finally, you know, um, I was enamored with her intellectually and, and in many other ways. And now she's my wife going on 23 years or longer. Um, and I think truth be told, she would, be the one that had the most impact on me aside from say my parents. Um, my dad was a judge. He was a sort of by the book, kind of a typical stereotypic judge. My mom was the opposite. Um, they split when I was very young. She, you know, there was no rule that she wasn't willing to break. You know, she was a real um, maverick and the combination of the two of them, they both had a real deep sense of justice and, and both came from very, um, poor backgrounds. And so all of that informed my desire to do work that um, felt like uh, it had um, some positive impact on the world. So I think the combination of those three figures um, informed the journalism. And, and uh, unsurprising, I must say, Ian, and I think it's also important to understand the background when it plays out in the, in the current work. 
uh, the the story about your wife is is fascinating, and uh, probably she probably makes you keep up with the Spanish even to this day. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll never. Yeah, yeah. She graded me fairly poorly and still does uh, in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, but also, our our spouses or partners tend to be the most critical, uh, the biggest, our biggest critics, uh, as much as our they are our biggest fans. So. Quite right. <laughs> Comes with Quite the territory. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, certainly your work is demanding. But before I go into some of the questions uh, to understand the work a little bit more, um, t what do you do for fun? What, what are the hobbies that Ian enjoys outside of this uh, this Indiana Jones lifestyle? <laughs> um, I um, I was a runner. My dad was a, a, an amazing runner. He went to the Olympic trials in 68. He won the national championship in college. He was an incredible runner. And I sort of starting at age 10, uh, not by choice, uh, followed the, the sort of family footsteps and went into the family business of, of track and cross country. And that kind of shaped my um, uh, life norms in that I became fairly addicted to some sort of endorphin uh, you know, poor man's mental health meds every day. And that comes in the form of exercise. I've stopped running. I now do CrossFit, but the answer to your question is I, I do rely on exercise a fair amount for sanity and, and pleasure. Um, so that's one thing. And then I listen to a lot of music. Uh, I really, I, I sooner would turn on music than I would turn on the TV, um, probably. Uh, and, um, that is the other thing that, I used to relax. And, and, uh, Ian, uh, if, if, uh, I, I want to take a page out of that book and use the exercises, my, my <laughs> two birds in one, you know, it's, it's, it's your hobby and you get your exercise at the same time. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. But don't try to stop it. That's the, at, at sea, I'm about to head back to sea for a month in Antarctica and you're on a ship in Antarctica not a whole lot that you can do to really get that endorphin fix. And so I'm praying to have a rowing machine or something because it is an addiction, you know, and if you, if you go cold Turkey, you feel it. Uh, so that is the downside of being so dependent on anything. Now, this may not be the best advice, but uh, somebody that just did a tour in Antarctica told me they did the polar bear dip and that uh, nothing gives your body and muscles an exercise, like trying to swim when in those cold waters. So <laughs> that may be, that may be one way to challenge yourself. It'll be the last you hear of me too, but yes, <laughs> duly noted on the suggestion. <laughs> and, and you notice with a caveat at the beginning, like this may not be the best suggestion, but they tried this and they survived. <laughs> you warned me. The, the lady, the lady that did uh, do it is also a marathon runner and, and pretty, pretty fit. So, cause as you was telling me that, I was like, I don't know that I would survive that. <laughs> no, I don't think that's for me. I'm, I'm a land creature, so I don't trust myself in, in, in that kind of cold water and as dangerous as the waves are up there. No, down there. Uh, no, uh, f fair enough. So. Ian, uh, just uh, you're the like I mentioned at the beginning, you're the first journalist I actually interview uh, in this context, and uh, excited that uh, it is you. Um, now, there may be people listening, being like, you know, I always wondered what it would be like to go through a career journey of this nature, or um, to to really understand a little bit about how your career evolved. Would you mind taking us through a bit of the more formative uh, career, more pivotal moments, and sort of what it looked like? I mean, for me, um, I followed a very zigzaggy 
non-traditional path. I mean, even my high, getting hired at the New York Times was odd, you know, because I had not in high school. Mo, the normal trajectory is you like writing, you like news, you like journalism, you get involved in your high school with the, you know, yearbook or the student newspaper. You do that at college. You start interning during summers, your late college phase. Maybe you, you even go to journalism school for a master's degree, and then you start in local papers and build your way up. That's the traditional textbook. And most people, in my case, I went to grad school for cultural anthropology. I became, I was very convinced that I wanted sort of a life of the mind. I was not very good at languages. I did want to travel a lot. Um, and I wanted to write stuff that a lot of people read and maybe helped fix things. So I then started freelancing on uh, magazine type stories. I worked on the Middle East. I worked in in, um, in West Bank for a while and, and um, right after Janine was bombed and spent some time doing uh, two years doing work on that issue and that place. And that kind of whetted my appetite for conflict zone and sort of hopefully public service journalism. And then after two years of freelance magazine writing, I decided to just apply for traditional jobs and the New York Times took me in partially because in retrospect, I realized they had the um, ability to take a chance on someone like me and they could teach me how to write fast and clean. I brought other things like academic background, et cetera, and spent time a bunch of places in the world. So that interested them. Um, so that's, that's my trajectory is very atypical. When I got to the Times, I always want to do what I'm doing now. I want to do long form, investigative, international. Okay. But you're not going to get onto that specialty without paying a lot of dues and learning what you're doing and building up a lot of trust with your institution. So it took me a good 15 years of beat reporting, you know, Senator so-and-so embezzled this money, a school shooting over here, you know, the, the standard stories that fill the newspaper that are breaking news which was not my fare. I didn't quite, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I think it's important, but I had to do that for about 15 years, running all over the country, et cetera, um, mostly national. And then I started inching my way into international stuff. And then I inched it into a specialty. Um, so that's, that's the path I followed. And uh, Ian, the, to take then the sort of the step to go and do something on your own, um, it's certainly the learnings from New York Times would have been helpful and also from a, you getting comfortable, but uh, what drove uh, what drove you to to start Outlaw the Outlaw Ocean Project? So the final two years, I well, so I was in twenty fourteen. Um, I sat down with my editor, and she said, "What do you want to do next?" And I said, "I think it would be amazing to do a series about the watery two thirds of the planet and do it a little bit differently than traditional ocean reporting is done. Not rewrite of academic papers about marine stories." but rather a human approach to the this frontier that has 50 million people, five zero million people working out there, but from whom we never hear or about whom we never hear. So send me out there. Let me go try to get on these vessels. Let me try to sort of bring back amazing, you know, kind of narrative. She said, okay, I went two years of uh, reporting, produced it for the newspaper, a whole series ran. Then I left for another two years and went on a book leave, went back out to sea, took this amazing videographer from Brazil with me, produced the book. Then I went back to the paper and thought, there are so many incredible stories and so few, if any, journalists out there doing this, that this feels like something I should double down on. And 
if I could just find a way to make the economics work. And so I, I started thinking, okay, well, what would I do differently if I could do whatever I wanted? And I'd say, okay, well, I, I don't want to run, I want to um, not only cover the space differently and consistently, but I also want to cover the space at the intersection of human rights and labor concerns on the one hand and environmental concerns on the other. So don't just get into the silo of one type of story or the other. And then number two, stop pulling stories out of the developing world and feeding them to the developed world. It feels sort of extractive and instead produce stories, but make sure that they run all over the world, including in the context that you're pulling them out of those folks that are most impacted. So that was a different model. And then do some funky things, meld journalism with art and murals to try to get young people and non-reading news consumers interested. Um, so I had all these wild ideas that I wasn't going to be able to do at the Times. When I went back to the Times, they said, look, we need you to move on to a new topic that's been great, but now you're back and we need you to look at this or that. And I kind of wanted to stick with this one line of reporting. So I left and I, I began fundraising with large philanthropies that understand journalism and understand what lines they can't cross. Like they can't tell you what to do and they can't tell you what stories to cover and they can't even see the story before it runs, but they believe in the value of what you're doing. So I fundraised and created um, what we have now. And uh, in, there were so many nuggets of information there that were particularly interesting. So running into both the developing and developed world at the same time, because sometimes we don't fully, especially in the Western world or the developed world, just generally, we don't fully appreciate how uh, skewed the amount of information we have and, and speed of information and the type of information we have uh, versus the developing world. And uh, uh, touching on, you know, what happens when people don't have the ability to read, which is still a big chunk of the world's population and how do you cater to them? So those are really interesting takeaways that frankly, I'm also learning uh, mm -hmm. for the first time on some of these items, which is extremely, extremely interesting. Um, now, certainly anytime you go into this type of work, uh, it is going to have its own set of challenges. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered? Well, one—I mean, one of them is um, funding. You know, just to be blunt, you know, it, it, we just finished this investigation. Took four years. We went to the high seas near the Falkland Islands, the high seas near the Galapagos Islands. These are all separate reporting trips that take months. Um, the sea border with North Korea and the coast of West Africa. Getting on fishing vessels, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's brutally time intensive, and to get out there and to do all the translation again with help from Alexa and others, but the drones and the petrol and everything you need to pull this off is uh, crushing. And so I spend a third of my time fundraising, and that's not my dream, you know, scenario. Um, uh, so that's one hard thing. But truth be told, the in, within the journalism itself, I'd say the hardest thing tends to be the logistics. If 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 we do if we set up requirement on ourselves as we do, which is we're only going to take a story if we can actually make it narrative. So it's a story, not an article. It's not just a stack a stacking of facts. It's like a beginning, middle and end. It's got a character. And even if you don't care about issue X or topic Y, you like a good yarn, you know, and so that's a story. And so if we're going to do narrative journalism and we're going to do it reported in theater, how can we do that? And the logistics of how are you going to get into Libya and not get killed? How are you going to um, get out a thousand miles from shore to get on these vessels. Like the logistics of setting up those goals are intense. Um, so, and then when you're at sea, you know, it's, you know, you're on an in bed for a month and a half on a South Korean squid vessel. It's a pretty dirty, rough environment. 
you got to make sure you don't get sick. They're not bringing you back to shore. You know, you can't get infections. You got to bring people with you that you really trust who know how to size folks up. It's any conflict zone reporting. It's, it's that. Um, so those logistics are intricate and difficult. Um, but in some ways, the part I love the most, especially when I'm in theater. I don't like setting up the trips, but I do really quite like the challenge of when we're on them. And, and I can appreciate the uh, the, the challenges uh, can uh, can also give that adrenaline shot of like, okay, I'm now dealing with the logistics I pre-planned. Right. Uh, Ian, you touched on something that I would like our audience to have an opportunity to at least be aware of how to help or, or how to contribute. Uh, fundraising being one of the biggest challenges, certainly you do very impactful uh, stories and very impactful. Some of these are very important causes that uh, you're sort of touching on certain aspects of them, but they are so much more, they can be so much bigger at times and the more funding is available, the more you can do with it. How can listeners help? What are the opportunities for you to, uh, for them to help and, and how do they reach out? Yeah, I mean, um, theoutlawocean.com is the website. And when you go to the website, there's a subscribe and there's a donate. The subscribe is a direct way that we deliver the goods to people who want to keep track of it. And it's an email newsletter and you can subscribe for free and you'll get the same stuff as those who don't. So I'll just be very honest about it. Um, and that's on principle, but a lot of folks opt to put something in the till five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. And that makes a huge difference. You know, I'd say 20% of our operating budget comes from average folks like that. And then the other option is donate. Um, there's a button there and you can fill it out. And um, so those are the two, ways on the website or just email, email me ian at the outlaw ocean.com. And, um, uh, I can walk you through whatever, you know, make it easy on you. If some folks say, look, I don't want to do it digitally. I want to mail you a check. Okay. Shoot me an email and I'll send you the information and then it's all tax deductible. And I'll give you all the information you need so that you get the tax benefit. Yeah. And then for any, uh, listeners from enterprises that uh, think they may be able to help in, in some in-kind way or in some, way that uh, so there, I've had conversations with Ian where it's anything from flight vouchers to uh, being able to donate drones to things that can be used without uh, that especially if you're in those industries where you have that that level of capability uh, I think all of those things can be helpful um, and uh, if it's easier for your enterprise to help in that way it's all of these can can uh, equate to bigger and better projects yeah, I would amplify that. I mean, we have folks who say, I run a huge hotel chain globally and um, we would give you a room. We travel incessantly. Um, and so, you know, or like you said, frequent flyer miles, people donate them because often they never use them, but they accrue lots of them or they just, you know, so they're, yeah, if people want to drop me an email, my, there's an email on the website um, and they can get in touch and I can figure out if there's a way they can support. But thanks for asking. No, I think it's important, Ian, uh, as, as we do this, uh, that, that not only to keep our audience informed and, and hear that you're a great story, but also to, to figure out ways to help. Um, now, Ian, your team is also experiencing consistently some challenging situations. Often it could be potentially dangerous. Um, it can be long days, as you described, uh, in conditions that are, could be cold and wet and and uh, with motion sickness potentially in induced, regardless of how much uh, medication you can take. So how do you, uh, like, what are some of the ways you've kept the team motivated and kept the team sort of 
pushing through some of these difficult situations, including yourself. Yeah, I mean, so on the vessels, if we're doing at sea reporting, we often um, get very few berths, meaning spots. Um, so far, I've never gotten more than one berth other than myself. So it's a two-man team, usually. I think I got one one reporting trip where I had a plus two, and I brought two videographers who double as translators. Um, so the teams are really small. When I went on land in Libya, the team was a little bit bigger because we had a documentary crew with us. The, the safeguards we take are variable. So uh, we have support from Garmin, for example, who equips us for free because they're sponsors of ours with small devices that we have on our belt at all time. If you go overboard, you know, you want that device on your belt because it's got an SOS button and it'll track you. Um, uh, but we have, you know, a whole protocol also in, especially, you know, most of the really dangerous situations we've been in have been on land. So, so Somalia, Borneo, Mexico, and Libya, uh, always when things got really, really rough, um, it was on land. And um, we have a protocol where the most of the team, so 10 of the 12 on the team are on land. And when we're in theater, someone is on duty 24 seven and they're receiving updates from us every six hours, just telling them where we are and that we're okay. In, in in Libya, we were taken captive by a militia and, and it was pretty awful. And um, But the, the plan that we had in place, luckily, um, worked pretty well. My wife was on the phone with me when I was taken. So she heard that and that was probably life-saving because she immediately activated, you know, outreach to um, U.S. State Department, the White House, and that's who ultimately rescued us. So we have like those sorts of catch mechanisms. If we go dark for longer than X hours, then they know who they're supposed to call and what they're supposed to do. But honestly, you know, for all that stuff you might do, the, the, the most consequential decision is the decision to go to these places. And once you get there, there's only, when I was taken by the militia, the first thing the guys came in when they came in the room, you know, 12 armed guys, gun to the head was, where's your tracking device? Um, so they knew I had a Garmin because the room was bugged. Um, and the first thing they knew to get out of the room and to separate me from. So you can do lots of security measures, but in places where they want to do you harm, they're probably going to be two steps ahead of you. And um, you just have to, you know, kind of hope for your best and 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 kind of obey your instincts also when it comes to sizing up folks. Um, and when you have a spidey sense that like, look, we should probably get out of this town faster than I was originally planning, because I'm just getting some strange vibes, you should probably listen to those whispers. And, and it's always a, a fine balance, right, Ian, because you're you have so much to cover and so much information to extract and, and learn. And at the same time, you can't do that at, uh, at the peril of, of you and your team. So I, that's, that's extreme, incredibly fascinating. Well, it's also a testament to what you have that I don't have, which is polyglot capabilities. Like, you know, when you are truly fluent in many languages, especially the ones in the place where you're going, you have an ability to read signs much better than I do. I'm relying on translators and that's a really thick, you know, that's a bad lens, you know? So I don't even know how to interpret a lot what's going down because I can't tell what the tone of what that guy was saying and things like that. So I'm even more at risk and it's why I really respect those like you who can speak many languages. Well, Ian, very soon we'll be able to equip we equip you with a little piece of equipment that you can hear live these things without relying on an interpreter. Hmm. But even then, uh, you know, the, the cues, picking up the cues, the cultural cues, and this is where there's only so much AI can do, right? The, right. The, 
right. cultural cues, you know, how does this individual strike you where it's a balance between understanding all of their makeup as an individual from uh, upbringing to uh, nationality, ethnicity, right. religion, right. and how that affects who they are today. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it, this is what makes it, uh, this is what makes it such a complex issue beyond just language. Yeah. And, and I've seen a few of these scenarios uh, over time and it is, uh, it, you know, it, it makes your work incredibly challenging and at the same time uh, rewarding. I think so. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. So Ian, I, I have, a, just because this part of it, I find uh, I had so many questions and I have to be selective for the purpose of today just to make sure that the, the, it's, it's in, as interesting to the audience as it is uh, to me as well. So uh, you have so many initiatives. There's so much that you can cover around the ocean, so many issues. How do you triage and how do you then decide, here's what we're going to pursue next? Which what topic? are the biggest factors? Yeah, so we... In so th take three steps back before you take two steps forward. So what can we do that's different than the New York Times or the New Yorker or the BBC or the Guardian or wherever? Okay. One is we can bring a lot of a decade's worth of tactical and subject matter fluency. So we know the right questions, how to ask them, where to go, etc. The second is we have we can again, if we have the funding, then we can engage in slow journalism at a time when everything is speeding up to a perilous degree. And because as you speed up explanations and, and journalism, it gets thinner and often wrong. Um, and that's what's happening in, in the news sphere, in the informational spheres, everything's getting faster, smaller, shorter, and off. And so we're, we're like, look, let's decidedly engage in slow journalism. So if something takes four years, then we're going to take four years. If it takes three months to just deal with one paragraph and one set of facts, let's deal with it. Um, or we take a whole nother trip. So that's, that's the other thing we do. So, okay. And then the other thing we try to do kind of methodologically is stay at the intersection of human and the Marine. So stay at that intersection. Don't drift into one or the other. Okay. So if you're choosing stories and those are your goals methodologically, then that frames it. What are stories that are going to still be fresh in a year from now, two years when we might finish? What are stories that we can have a seriously global impact? You know, and I didn't mention this before. One of the things we do differently is we don't abide by exclusivity and copyright. So we self-fund, we then buy philanthropy, et cetera. Then we come out two years later with this amazing story and it's got lots of parts, a 10 part newspaper series, a, a two part magazine series, a documentary film and a, a bunch of a podcast, a whole bunch of things. Right. Then we go out and we say, hey, look, BBC, El País, El Globo, Le Monde Diplomatique, The Economist, The New York Times, The New Yorker. We have something for you. None of your folks can match it because we spent three years doing it. No one else goes out there. It's super polished. It's all legal. It's fact check. Everything you want, it's here. Um, you can have it, you can run it, but it and it will be free. Now that's a great word in the age of bad business journalism where no one's making money, but you cannot lock it down and only your readers get to have it. Maybe you get a week of exclusivity, but then it goes out to Gambia and Taiwan and Venezuela and all these other places, Libya, because those places are going to run it too. And you need to be okay with that. And we get help from Alexa and others to translate these things into foreign languages and boom. Well, that means a story, the Pulitzer Prize winning project I, I worked on at the Times, four or five million max readers, right? 
the investigation we just put out ran in 36 countries in 12 languages and 115 venues, over 250 million people consumed it. That's a huge impact. That's how you actually move the needle on really big issues because it's getting read everywhere. And so how can we choose stories that can be told in a global fashion that will still be fresh in two years from now and can, can be reported in a narrative way on site? Though that's how we choose our stories. And that's so important, Ian, because uh, you mentioned this earlier, uh, the, especially in the countries where they're the most affected by some of these, uh, and often they tend to be in the developing world. So if they didn't have access to this information, then you're just really getting a demographic that is more curious, but not right. affected by it all exactly. that much. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, or, or indirectly, at least, you know, I mean, overfishing affects all of us, for example, but it yeah. is uh, who, who impacts the most sometimes can be uh, very far from here geographically. And oftentimes those very places are complicit, right? There, there, there aren't pure culprits and pure victims. Everyone's a little bit of both, right? So oftentimes the developing contexts that are most impacted are also playing into it. But the very folks in those settings that are corrupt and doing bad things, the locals can't say that or else they're going to get locked up. We can. So if we can find editors willing to run it, then we can now have an impact in those places in a way that really matters. And Ian, again, I'm learning a lot from this podcast as I expected I would, but the slow journalism, another term that uh, I feel like I should have been more familiar with. And, and it makes a lot of sense, especially in today's age where we're used to getting snippets of information through little articles that are, or, or almost uh, massaged articles that are in, Put into three four paragraphs and you're like okay that's i just got some highlights but <laughs> there's so much depth i'm missing out of this <laughs> yeah it's junk food i mean it tastes good going down and we all yeah. consume it myself included but oh it's not a great nutritional way to inform your brain well and, and this is i mean even just identifying that that that's a lot of what we're consuming uh, just saying i'm up to speed on what's happening out there because i get a bunch of snippets is, is me eating a bunch of junk food and saying uh, I've, I've eaten today and that's right. not uh, that's not right. good enough uh, right. for, for anyone that is in nutrition <laughs> we're using a lot of synonyms but <laughs> or a lot of parallels to draw from uh, Ian uh, two more things uh, just from from this last part and one of these uh, just more as an appeal to our audience uh, anyone that has been sort of in the foreign service or they've been a former diplomat, that's another way that you can help Ian and the Outlook Ocean Project. Because they're involved in a lot of countries, often your influence and the ways you can help navigate some of the political system can be very helpful. So even though it may not be monetary, some of that can be very helpful. Ian and I have had a few of those conversations in the mm -hmm. past. I know many of our listeners uh, have had that type of background in the past. That could be a great way to help. And uh, For sure. uh, the, the very example you gave Ian, that being uh, kidnapped by a militia while you're speaking to your wife, that could have been particularly dangerous if it wasn't for the right help following through. Quite right. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about the, uh, because again, the audience, uh, the Pulitzer Prizes tend to be very, uh, very rare and, and by definition uh, sought after and, and uh, our audience often won't get a chance to speak to a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. So what was the project, what was the, the work that led to that prize, Ian, uh, just for the, and Ian has a Wikipedia page as well with a little bit more information on this for the purpose of our audience. But since we have him live, I thought, what better way to ask? So to clarify, there are those reporters who win Pulitzer's 
independently, which are, is really impressive and not what I did. Um, and there are those who win them when they're on a team. Um, and I was on a team and not even the lead player on the team. I was on a team um, of about four or five reporters at the New York Times who uh, discovered that the then governor, Elliot Spitzer, governor of New York, was uh, making use of prostitutes. And um, we got together and investigated it. Obviously, the concerns, apart from prostitution being illegal, is the potential for leveraging a, a very powerful former attorney general turned um, governor. Um, so the New York Times broke that story and, and, and won the Pulitzer for that. And, and uh, that's also very, uh, we appreciate the background and certainly the interest of even understanding about how that works and, uh, and to your point, winning it independently. It's, it's, uh, so we're, we're waiting for the Outlaw Ocean Project to, to get that again uh, with, with some independence. We are waiting for it too. Uh, not holding our breath, but uh, that would be quite nice. That would help us a lot. But we try not to think about those things because it's a lot of heartbreak. Um, and Ian, I know you described a little bit earlier around if anyone wanted to go into investigative journalism, sort of what the traditional path was and how yours was a little different. Would you have any advice for anyone that is considering that? Like, what what are the things they should consider? And you outlined a path, but maybe tidbits that you could recommend. Well, so I, I think th there's a prerequisite question, which is anyone interested in going into journalism generally, and then the sort of narrow niche, smaller niche that is investigative. First, let's understand the terms. So beat reporting is you're covering a region or a sport or a topic. You're, you're the reporter on guns. You're the reporter on prisons. You're the reporter on France. You're, you know, so you have, you're the White House reporter. These are beats. And your job is to, I was the mid-Atlantic beat reporter. That meant for the, for the New York Times, it was the mid-Atlantic bureau chief. So anything that happened from the state of Kentucky all the way to the state of Ohio, was my jurisdiction. And if I didn't get on a plane to go cover it, then I needed to assign someone to do it. And so that's beat reporting. And it means you're constantly sprinting and you're, you're watching a, a terrain, a topic, um, and deciding, is this rising to the worthiness of us covering it? And if so, do we have something new to say or what's the angle that's missed? Or is this feeling not really something we should be weighing in on just yet? Um, the alternative is, um, uh, often calls enterprise reporting or investigative enterprise is just um, enterprising, meaning you're coming up with ideas that are fresh and it's sort of sui generis, you know, notions of interesting thoughts or things happening in society. Investigative, as I define it, is more prosecutorial and it's um, you're looking for things that are broken, that bright light might help shed light on a fix. Um, so you're already going in, into with a, methodological bias. Like there are things that are broken in the world and you want to shed light on them and, and reveal them, but hopefully in a responsible, rigorous, explanatory way that gets them fixed. That's what I wanted to do and what we do now. Most folks who end up in investigative do not start an investigative. It takes a lot of time before, because the stakes are really high. You can, you can, you know, really get blowback. Um, so it takes a while, but if you start with being a beat reporter, win the trust of your editors, do a good job, know how to write well, have a really fresh eye on things that feel like they're hiding in plain sight, but might make a really good story. And why hasn't anyone looked at this before? And, and be willing to carve out time in your busy schedule to chase those passion projects, even alongside your beat. 
and do that over many years. And that's how you end up coming into investigative. Well, and not dissimilar to how you ended up starting the Outlaw Ocean Project. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And Ian, uh, we're about to go into the rapid fire questions, which is uh, um, a part of our uh, session where I ask you a, a few questions and you just give me one word answers. Okay. But before, before we get to that, I had one last question for you. With everything you know um, or, and have come to learn in, during this process, what is your advice on how we can act both as a society and, and as individuals to work to a more sustainable and, and just future for the oceans uh, in, in a way that is equitable as well? I mean, I think that there needs to be more journalism and, there, and more importantly, there needs to be more governance, quite especially the high seas, this international waters space. Um, how we all act, you know, get behind it. So as a taxpayer, ask questions to your lawmaker or the guy you might, or woman you might elect. Um, as a parent or sibling, read up, talk to people, ask, you know, say, oh, I read this thing and, you know, spread the word essentially. As a donor, which we all are, you know, support something. Not us necessarily, but other folks doing good work. Um, as a buyer, you know, um, spend a half hour, read up on, should I continue buying X and consuming it or consider something else? These are all different hats we wear and different ways that we can all sort of have an impact. Oh, and, and that's really important to me and just not take things for granted and not assume that due diligence has been done on everything that we are able to buy and that some of it is uh, the responsibility lies with us to, to ensure some justice here. Um, all right, so I'm to switch into something a bit more lighthearted because that is extremely important by the same time, uh, something that gives us a lot to think about. So to the rapid fire questions, first word that comes to mind, not too much, uh, not to overthink it. What is your favorite word? Um, uh, wow. Wow. Let's say wow. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, the, the whole point is you got to stump a journalist. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> you already did it. Your first one out. <laughs> I got a wow. And now what word do you hate? Moist. That one's easy. I hate that word. Moist. Um, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing, if any? Colonel. There's no R. I had, hard, I had a hard time with that as well, especially as a non-English speaker. Uh, it's like colonel. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It's it it's it's illegal. It does not follow it, the rules. Yeah, it's but that's a lot of English as well. So. <laughs> um. What is your favorite word in another language, if any? Zafra, which is in Cuba, the period right after they cut the cane and they got to get it to processing within 24, 48 hours and the entire island mobilizes to hustle the cane across. And it's this kind of this hyped up thing that happens, this festival of work and solidarity. It's really amazing. Zafra. And, and Ian, I didn't know that. And uh, like many other things today, I'm learning a lot. Uh, how many languages do you speak? Two. And I assume Spanish is the other one? Yes. Fair enough. Uh, and one word to describe yourself by? Um, uh, intense. Uh, and the, it's, uh, this was a fun uh, few words. That was the end of our, our rapid fire questions. And it's... Uh, it's really designed to be fun, lighthearted, and uh, not great. to overthink. It works <laughs> it well. Is. 
I got a wow out of you, so that was good. For <laughs> somebody intent to get a wow. <laughs> Marvel at how stumped I was. That, that's why that was just... <laughs> Uh, no, and, and Ian, really appreciate your time today. I think it's been extremely informative. I've certainly learned a lot. I think the audience will. And I think I appreciate you sharing the ways in which the audience can also help, which is extremely important. Um, I think being aware of, of everything the Outlaw Ocean Project is very, it's, it's it, from, from an audience perspective, it's a great way to get informed and to uh, make some decisions in the future in light of that information that often we don't have or we don't know where to access it from, and certainly it comes with a lot of credibility. And uh, most importantly, the uh, making the time, Ian, uh, to, to join us here pre-holidays. I know, certainly know it's a, uh, it's a busy period, especially when you're preparing to go for a month in Antarctica. Well, by look, the water. I appreciate it, and, and, and thank you. Let me pause again to say all the help you've given us on translation and interpretation uh, has been game-changing, so I really appreciate the long support you've provided. And, and Ian, I think it's uh, much like how we're encouraging the audience, it's very important that we step up because we believe in, I think, need that support. Otherwise, they'll never advance uh, without that level of commitment. So thank you again for the time today, Ian. And uh, I and truly looking forward to some of the doing some future sessions coming uh, coming up. That's great. Well, thanks again for having me.